Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and a right spirit within me. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the strange new world of the Bible, the greatest triumph, the pinnacle of all moments, is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It's Easter. It's the end of this season we call Lent. It's what we uh, build toward each and every year in the liturgical calendar. But Easter is not the happy ending of a fairy tale. It's not despite all the efforts of the powers and principalities, everyone lives happily ever after. That is not how the story goes. There is no resurrection without crucifixion. That's also why there are always far more people in church on Easter than on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Because on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, we are confronted with death. And we want to stay as far away from death as we possibly, possibly can. Easter, for all of its wonder, for all of its joy, is only the beginning of a new reality in which the entry point is, in fact, suffering and fear. There's a reason that in the gospel accounts on Easter, the people who uh, approach the tomb first run away in fear. Contrary to the cliche aphorisms of the so-called prosperity gospel, if you just prayed harder, you'd be healthy, you'd be wealthy, friends, that's not the way it works. Struggle is deeply embedded in our faith. It's why Jesus warns about the cost of discipleship. It's why Paul writes about suffering in all of his letters to all of the churches. Struggles are present in the life of faith because when push comes to shove, we usually look out for ourselves at the expense of our neighbors. Paul puts it this way. He says, none is righteous. No, not a one. We simply can't keep the promises that we make, let alone the promises that God commands us to keep. It doesn't take much of a glance on social media or spend any time on the news to see example after example after example of our wanton disregard for ourselves and for those nearest to us. The old prayer book, the Book of Common Prayer for the Church of England, it used to refer to us people as miserable offenders. Don't you love being called a miserable offender? <laughs> it's like being told you're dust, and to dust you shall return. And yet, God remains steadfast with us precisely in our inability to be good. To me, one of the greatest miracles of Scripture happens there on Easter, and it is a miracle. These ragtag group of would-be followers, the ones we call the, the apostles, these who betray and abandon and deny Jesus, they fail miserably. And yet it is to them that the risen Jesus returns. They are transfigured by the transfigured one. And their journey of faith, it doesn't begin in success. It doesn't begin in good works. It begins in their failure. And so it is with us even today. It's through our brokenness, our shattered souls, that God picks up the pieces in order to make something new, perhaps something even more beautiful than we were before we recognized how broken we were. On the front of each of your bulletins, you will see a cross, and the cross is inlaid with gold. 
There is an ancient Japanese art form called kintsugi that is sort of represented here. The story goes that centuries and centuries ago, uh, a Japanese emperor had a teapot and he was arguing with one of his servants. And as they were arguing back and forth, the servant knocked into the teapot and it broke, it shattered into pieces. And before the emperor had a chance to uh, dispatch with this servant to get rid of him, an artisan stepped forward begged on his behalf and said, let me see what I can make with it. And so this potter took these broken pieces from this teapot and he took it back to his, his sort of workshop and he, he created this bonding agent, but he put gold leaf inside of it. And he worked and he worked and he took all those pieces and he put that pot back together and he presented it to the emperor and the emperor said, it's even more beautiful than it was before it was broken. And so for centuries, this is an art form that takes place here as well, but primarily in Japan where broken objects, particularly pottery, is taken and a bonding agent with gold is used to fix it, but not just fix it, to bring it into what we call a new newness. That's what the word kintsugi means. And so if you see on the front of your, your uh, program for tonight, there was a cross that was broken, shattered into pieces, and someone used kintsugi to bring it back together. It wasn't fixed it was brought into new newness. There is a beauty in brokenness. Like the Kintsugi master, Jesus takes us and renders us into a new newness. Jesus comes not to fix us, but to admire us and all of our broken potential to help us recognize beauty even precisely in our brokenness. In church speak, we call it redemption. Now, the psalm that I read for us tonight, Psalm 51, has marked the beginning of this season for Christians since Lent was first observed. And it begins with a request for forgiveness. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. We call this a penitential psalm. It's a psalm that expresses sorrow for sin. But there's something strange about the way it begins. You would think that the, the psalmist would begin by confessing the psalmist's sin, but that's not what the psalmist does. The psalmist begins by asking and requesting forgiveness. Now, that might not seem like much of a distinction, but it implies the psalmist knows that they have something worth confessing and that it will require someone else to take the sin away. It means that the psalmist knows the condition of their condition our condition. We all do things we know we shouldn't do. We all avoid doing things we know we should do. Now, some of us are pretty good at uh, making mistakes and brushing it all aside, rationalizing the things we do or we leave undone, but at some point or another, that guilt starts to percolate. It starts to build up within us, and we lay awake at night unable to do much of anything under the knowledge of what we've done or something we should have done. But the psalmist sees it all very differently. Somehow the psalmist knows that forgiveness has come even before the sin or the mistake occurred. The psalmist knows that God is the God of mercy. For us, people who are entertaining the beginning of the season we call Lent, we are compelled to proclaim the truth that we are justified not when we confess our sins, but right smack dab in the middle of them. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God proves God's love toward us that while we were sinners, not before we were sinners, not after we got our act together, but in the midst of our sins, Christ died for us. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which, by the way, includes all of us, since Jesus has taken upon himself all of us on the cross. So on Ash Wednesday, the challenge for us isn't whether or not God will forgive us. The challenge is whether or not we can admit that we need to be forgiven. One of my favorite writers, Robert Farrar Capon, uh, loved to write, and I've said this probably 50 times in the short time I've been here. Heaven is populated entirely and only by forgiven sinners. Hell, whatever hell is, is just a courtesy for those who don't think they need to be forgiven. That's why Ash Wednesday is so important and so difficult. Because it requires us to turn back to the God who first turned toward us. It's, It's an opportunity to reflect on what we're doing with our lives right now and how our lives might resonate with the one who gave his life for us. How something beautiful can come even out of our brokenness. And that's why Ash Wednesday and Lent, it's all about honesty. We are dust. And to dust we shall return. We are broken, miserably broken, and we are in need of a divine potter who can do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. I think it's all too easy sometimes in the church to get together and say, oh, we've got it figured out. Those people out there, oh, they're the bad ones, we're the good ones. I think sometimes we forget that Peter wrote in one of his letters to the church that judgment comes first for the household of God. We then, we don't exist to show the world how it's still stuck in its trespasses. Instead, we exist to confess that we know the truth about who we are and that God won't leave us this way. We can't fix ourselves. In any other place, in any other institution, around any other people, that would sound like unmitigated bad news. Everything about our lives is designed about trying to be better all the time. But in the church, we're reminded that we really can't fix ourselves. But it's also good news. It's good news because nobody, not the devil, not ourselves, not anyone else can ever take us away from the love that refuses to let us go. Even the worst stinker in the world is someone for whom Christ died. Even the most broken piece of pottery can be made into something new by the potter. And so I wonder, I wonder what Lent would look like for us this year if we simply allowed broken people to gather together. And instead of trying to fix them, we loved them. We beheld them, and we contemplated how broken things can be beautiful things. I wonder what Lent would look like if we looked hard in the mirror, saw the truth of who we are, how broken we are, and know that even in our brokenness, God sees beauty. We are dust. And it's to dust we shall return. But for God, dust is just the beginning of throwing something on the wheel and making something beautiful. And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.